You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Okay, welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, This is my very first episode, and I'm sure you'll be able to tell as we go along that I am very excited to be sitting down to record this. So far, personally, I've only ever done short-form content on TikTok, um, making videos that are pretty well split between serious takes on royal history and some insanely stupid jokes um, also about royal history. Short-form content is kind of what made me want to delve into podcasting, Um, as I'm getting to the point where there is always 10 times more information that I feel like I should be packing into videos. And that's hard when you only have a minute or three minutes to get your point across. That being said, I've been very lucky in the way my audience has grown over there, and I've also gotten a lot of questions, which I don't always have the time to dedicate a whole video to, as much as I would really, really love to. I'm hoping that being able to sit down and record longer episodes on a single topic will help me feel that I'm doing justice to everything that I cover. That being said, the premise of this show is pretty simple. Each episode, I will select a work of art that can tell us some kind of story from the past. I'll let you know what this week's piece is going to be in just a few minutes, and I will be posting it over on Instagram as well at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give that account a follow. It'll just save you time in the future. This week, we're diving into the private life of Queen Victoria, specifically her relationship with her husband and, to an extent, with herself. If you're thinking, eh, that's not quite my jam, I would encourage you to keep listening anyway. I'm of the opinion that learning about royalty as people instead of as their official role gives us incredible insight into their actions and their policies. And if royal history really isn't your thing, please don't worry, there will be plenty of non-royal episodes to come in the future. This is just a comfortable place for me to start things out for our very first episode. So, let's get into it. If I asked you to picture Queen Victoria, what comes to mind? 
Perhaps you conjure up an image of her late in life, wearing all black except for her white widow's veil. There's probably an absurdly tiny little crown perched on top of her decidedly round head. She's definitely not smiling, and you can almost feel the disapproval radiating from her. Okay, what if I asked you to picture the young Queen Victoria? Not Emily Blunt from the movie, but the real Victoria. After all, she became queen when she was just 18 years old. She had a childhood. She had a young adulthood. That stern expression on her face is probably still there, but now you might picture her in the full color of a royal portrait rather than the black and white of an early photograph. Maybe she's surrounded by her kids or she's holding the royal regalia. Still, in these images of the young Victoria, that imposing presence is probably still there. And this fits with what we know about Victoria's reign. When we think of the Victorian era, we often bring up ideas of strict social conventions and conservative family values. She reigned for an impressive 63 years and seven months, longer than any previous British monarch. Many biographers agree that her outwardly stony appearance was a way of earning respect and showing authority in an age when many people were still doubtful about having a woman on the throne. We can talk about the many landmarks of her reign and what some would call her achievements in a future episode, but today we're going to talk about the other thing that people remember about Victoria, that she was passionately in love with her husband, Prince Albert, from their marriage in 1839 to his death in 1861. Entire institutions like the Victoria and Albert Museum are named after them as a pair, even though he was never crowned king. They were the model of the perfect couple and the perfect family, and together they produced nine children who would go on to populate the royal houses of Europe. After Albert's death, Victoria went into deep mourning and wore black for the rest of her life. She withdrew and made fewer public appearances and rarely visited London, earning herself the nickname the Widow of Windsor. This is almost definitely where our idea of the kind of dumpy, unsmiling Queen Victoria comes from. All of this to say that Queen Victoria's lasting image has been defined by her roles as a queen, a mother, a wife, and later a widow. But behind closed doors, she was still a woman, a person. And in my opinion, nothing helps to illustrate that better than the artwork we are going to look at today. So, I invite you now to pull up the painting that's going to help tell our story today. There are a few ways you can do this. If you want to Google it, search for it, search Queen Victoria 1843 by Franz Zaver Winterhalter. Uh, Winterhalter, like the season, Halter, H-A-L-T-E-R. You can also visit my Instagram, Art of History Podcast, and look for the post labeled episode one. So, what are we looking at here? The canvas itself is oval-shaped, and it's almost entirely filled with an image of Queen Victoria from the chest up. She is leaning against a red cushion and gazing out the right side of the image. Her blue eyes, though, are unfocused and have a kind of dreamy glaze to them. Her mouth, a dusty rose against her pale white skin, is, in the words of historian Lucy Worsley, very slightly and very sexily open. No pursed, tight frown of disapproval here. Perhaps the most striking thing about the portrait is Victoria's hair. It is half undone, unraveling across her left shoulder and cascading over her breast. 
the artist makes no illusions about her really kind of average mousy brown hair color, but it seems to glisten as it gently curls away from that tight knot at the back of her head. If you've seen other images of Queen Victoria, then you know that this is already quite the departure. But the image invites the viewer to let their eyes continue to wander over the queen's form, so that's what we'll do. Lucy Worsley again describes what we can see as Victoria's, quote, ripe, luscious body with plump white shoulders revealed. There is a certain softness to her. I don't know if I would call it luscious, but there are no sharp edges or harsh lines. It's kind of easy to overlook the simple white gown that Victoria is wearing in the portrait. It is minimally painted with loose, flowing brushstrokes, and this is pretty fitting as we aren't supposed to be focusing on her fashion sense. She wears only two pieces of jewelry, a pair of simple drop earrings, and a heart-shaped pendant on a gold chain. The Royal Collection Trust, where this painting can be found, identifies this necklace as a glass heart-shaped locket containing a lock of Prince Albert's hair, which, according to her diary, the Queen wore night and day before their marriage. If you haven't already figured it out, that locket gives us a clue as to who this painting was meant for. I'll give you a hint, it wasn't you or me. <laughs> Let's take a step back for a moment and look at the artist, Franz Winterhalter. He was born in Germany in the Black Forest, where he was encouraged to draw while in school. He traveled to Freiburg in 1818 to begin his studies and then moved on to Munich in 1823, where he attended the Academy of Arts and studied under Josef Steiler, a fashionable portrait painter. He received support from a few different dukes and then began to move in upper-class courtly circles. The nobility grew to really like how Winterhalter could enliven official pomp with modern fashion. Interestingly, though, he never received praise for his work from serious art critics, who accused him of romanticizing his subjects for the sake of gaining popularity. But this was exactly why his aristocratic customers appreciated his style. He was able to give his sitters the image that they wished for or that they needed to project to the public while also creating this subtle intimacy between the canvas and the viewer. And when it came down to it, that was how he propelled his career forward, so that was what he was going to do. This led to Winterhalter becoming primarily known for his flattering and fashionable portraits of royalty and upper-class society of the mid-1800s. He would eventually receive commissions from the royal families of England, France, Spain, Russia, Portugal, Mexico, and Belgium. Winterhalter first caught Queen Victoria's attention through a recommendation from her aunt by marriage, Louise of Orléans, Queen of the Belgians. Side note, Belgium wasn't really a thing yet, so if you were king or queen there, it was of the Belgians, of the people. <laughs> Winterhalter went on to paint over 120 works at the English court from 1842 onwards, although not all of those were portraits. He did paint Victoria herself several times, usually in full royal regalia or surrounded by her family. But in 1843, Victoria approached him with a different type of commission. She wanted him to paint her for her husband's eyes only, and that's what we're seeing in this portrait. 
By the time that Victoria was commissioning this portrait, she had been married to her husband, Prince Albert, for a little over three years. Let's back up quickly to look at how they got here. Their wedding had taken place on February 10th, 1840 in the Chapel Royal of St. James Palace, London. Although they were initially brought together for dynastic interests and because they were first cousins, Victoria and Albert did love and care for each other deeply. That wasn't a requirement for royal marriages, and some would say it still isn't, so it was a nice bonus. Their wedding was an indicator that it was love rather than duty which was going to define their marriage. On the day, there were a few indicators of this. For one thing, Victoria broke with royal tradition when she chose to wear a relatively plain dress to her wedding rather than an elaborate court gown or royal robes. For context, at this time there was a specific code that you had to follow when you attended the royal court or court events. Usually this meant following the fashion trends, although hooped skirts were required well into the Regency era, way past the point where they were fashionable. By the year 1840, though, skirts had slimmed and were then beginning to get fuller again, and at court, your dress was required to have a train. Victoria opted for a train that was so comically short that her bridesmaids, who traditionally were supposed to trail behind her carrying it, ended up trampling all over each other as they each jostled to get a good grip on the fabric. By royal standards, this was considered a faux pas and quite common, as was Victoria's choice to wear a white gown. Cloth of gold or silver would have been considered much more befitting a ruling queen. But as you may know, her white gown solidified the concept of a white wedding dress in Western society, which we still cling to today. Some accounts say that Victoria opted for no jewelry at all, but she actually did wear an enormous sapphire brooch from Albert and a diamond necklace from the Turkish Sultan. It is correct that she wore no tiara or crown on her head, just a wreath of orange blossoms. Again, very strange for a ruling monarch. This made for a wedding look that could be, and was, replicated by her subjects. Some people who were used to all the pomp and circumstance of court events disapproved of this move, and one wrote that Victoria and her bridesmaids, quote, looked like village girls. Together, all of this relative simplicity signaled that Victoria was getting married as a woman in love, not as a queen. She even kept the traditional language to obey her husband in the wedding vows, a promise that she truly intended to keep while at home with Albert. Onlookers apparently had tears in their eyes as Albert and Victoria left their wedding hand in hand. A squeeze on the hand was the couple's secret signal to one another that they should escape for some alone time, where Albert apparently promised his new wife that there should, quote, never be any secrets between them. Victoria recorded this moment in her diary and years later added the annotation, and so it was. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. A quick note on Victoria's journals. We are really fortunate that Queen Victoria recorded her own thoughts and feelings throughout her life as she was a prolific diary keeper from a young age. 
However, many of those diaries were either edited or destroyed by her youngest daughter, Princess Beatrice, after her death. The ones that we do have must still be taken with a grain of salt. Victoria, after all, probably wrote them knowing full well that they would be read by us one day. Even so, it's sometimes surprising how universal her thoughts and feelings come across as you read through her diary entries. And so we also have Victoria's own impression of her wedding night. She did get sick during the wedding banquet and had to go lie down in her room, but she still wrote, starting in all caps, I will add, I never, never spent such an evening. Three exclamation points. And all caps again. My dearest, dearest, dear Albert. (laughs) His excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I never could have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness. Really, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? To be called by names of tenderness I have never yet heard used to me before was bliss beyond belief. Oh, exclamation point, this was the happiest day of my life. She also recorded later that, quote, we did not sleep much. Let's return to 1843, when Victoria had given birth to three of her and Albert's eventual nine children. This young family took joy in celebrating life's milestones together, observing every birthday, anniversary, and holiday with gifts to go along with it. A curator at the Royal Collection Trust observes that commissioning and exchanging art was at the very heart of Victoria and Albert's relationship. In short, gift-giving was their love language. Albert was particularly fond of ordering jewelry for his wife. Victoria was often painted wearing pieces that he designed himself, including her sapphire coronet, her emerald tiara, and the oriental circlet, which is still owned and worn by Queen Elizabeth II. Victoria revered Albert's design skills, once writing that, quote, Albert has such taste and arranges everything for me about my jewels. For her part, when it was her turn to be the gift giver, Victoria tended more towards commissions of art, like portraits or sculptures. Sometimes she would produce drawings or watercolors for Albert herself. Here's an anecdote that I personally just love. In 1844, the Welsh sculptor John Gibson was commissioned to model Victoria. On one occasion, she was asked to come sit for him, and he recorded how Victoria, quote, came into the room accompanied by the prince, who, like a fine young husband, had his arm around his wife's neck and, pointing to her shoulder, said, Mr. Gibson, you must give me this dimple. That particular sculpture must have gotten the Queen's approval because in 1849, she had a second version made to give to Albert as a birthday present. And I swear, while both versions do have Victoria's right shoulder bared, the 1844 official version doesn't seem to have a dimple, but the 1849 version does. Looking back to our Winterhalter portrait, Queen Victoria commissioned this as a secret picture for an earlier birthday, Albert's 24th. Side note, his birthday was August 26th, which is the day I am recording this. I didn't know that going into this, and sometimes it's a little weird how history lines up. 
<laughs> Victoria and Albert were exactly the same age as well, which is another breath of fresh air for a royal marriage. The 1843 portrait showing Victoria with her hair half undone, that almost sensual expression on her face, was a resounding success, as the Queen wrote, He thought it so like, meaning it resembled her, and so beautifully painted. I felt so happy and proud to have found something that gave him so much pleasure. This painting, should it have been seen by the public, would have been downright shocking and pretty taboo. Depicting any identifiable woman in such an undone state was unusual for any painter, let alone one working for a queen. Capturing a queen with such a lovesick expression and, dare I say, bedroom eyes would have been truly scandalous. Looking back in 1873, Victoria recorded fondly that this was, quote, my darling Albert's favorite picture. He was said to particularly like the way that her hair, half released from that low knot, cascaded down her back and shoulder rather invitingly. Perhaps it was Albert's affinity for the secret portrait that led it to become Victoria's favorite portrait of herself as well. This was a big deal for the queen, who tended to sketch self-portraits that were much more stoic and reserved, and who in her youth had genuinely struggled with her body image. Now, Victoria was considered pretty in her younger years. She had a sweet, round face and was considered nice-looking, but nothing special. An artist once recorded her height as 5 feet and 1 and 1 quarter inches, although her official height was always touted as 5 foot 2. As a teenager, Victoria's diet was restricted by her mother and her advisor, Sir John Conroy. As a result, when Victoria became queen and gained control over her own life, she apparently found self-control to be a challenge. She once told her prime minister, Lord Melbourne, that if she only ate when she was truly hungry, quote, she'd be eating all day. In the first 10 days of Victoria's reign, she and her household ate the equivalent of a year's wages for a bank clerk in oranges, apples, grapes, gooseberries, currants, cherries, and strawberries. Victoria indulged to the point that her doctor advised her to begin skipping lunch every day. To her horror, Victoria found that she weighed 56.6 kilograms at the end of her first year as queen. That's 124 pounds. Given her short stature, remember, five foot two, she would today teeter on the edge of being classified as obese, but let me just say, the BMI is not a good metric anyway, and that's a completely normal body weight. However, it seems as though Victoria viewed this as a, quote, full figure, and she sought further advice from her doctors on how she could slim down. They advised her to exercise and maybe stop sitting down so much for the artists tasked with painting her portrait. She went into her marriage and her childbearing years quite fearful about what they would do to her body. But interestingly, these anxieties about her figure seemed to abate once Victoria was married to Albert. He seemed to truly adore her, both inside and out, and after her marriage, her journals contain no more concerns over her weight or her appearance, just in historian Lucy Worsley's words, a frank acceptance that she was not perfect. She goes on that, as a married woman, she had begun to feel more physically confident. 
This was Albert's doing. He had come to be delighted with his buxom little wife. It's safe to say that her appetite for lavish filling food was replaced with her appetite for her husband. Albert had the Winterhalter portrait hung in his writing room at Windsor Castle. This was deep within their private suite of rooms and would have been where he spent a lot of his alone time. After Victoria's death, the Winterhalter painting was considered to be too private and perhaps too overtly sensual to be shown to the public. Until 1877, we had no idea that it even existed. Today, the painting is in the Royal Collection, and it's housed at Kensington Palace, where Victoria and Albert met and fell in love. As far as I can tell, the painting has only been displayed in public once or twice since Victoria gave it to Albert 179 years ago, today. Once was in 2010 as part of the exhibition Victoria and Albert Art and Love in the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham Palace. This show highlighted the Queen's delight in collecting, gifting, and displaying works of art, all the way through her engagement in 1839 to Albert's death in 1861. This show was also one of the first times that the popular image of Victoria as a melancholy, perpetual widow was challenged. Instead, the objects that were chosen, including our Winterhalter portrait, highlighted her as a passionate and open-minded young woman. It's true that after Albert's death, from what we think was typhoid fever, Victoria hardened into a widow who wore black for the rest of her life. She had Prince Albert's rooms in all of their houses preserved exactly as he had left them, and had hot water, fresh clothes, and fresh linens brought into them every day. She slept beneath a photograph hung on her wall, showing a deceased Albert's head and shoulders. Victoria described her feelings of what we now would call major depression by saying, quote, those paroxysms of despair and yearning and longing and of daily, nightly longing to die for the first three years never left me. After Albert's death, Victoria lost a lot of her interest in intellectual and artistic pursuits. In my opinion, this is also where our idea of her as stuffy and set in her ways comes from. Had Albert lived into old age alongside his wife, there's no telling how these areas may have progressed differently under their joint influence. Victoria went into partial retirement after losing Albert, to the point that her subjects stopped feeling sympathy for her and instead grew to resent her stubbornness. They did get over this eventually, though, and so did Victoria to some extent. The public warmly celebrated the first ever Diamond Jubilee of a British monarch in 1897 to mark her 60th year on the throne. Next year, we'll celebrate Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee. She is the only British monarch to ever surpass Victoria's reign. I hope you enjoyed this small peek into the private life of Queen Victoria. As I said at the start, it's my hope that not every episode will be about royalty going forward, but this was a very comfortable place for me to dip my toes into the podcasting waters. If you feel like leaving a review, please do so, and if you're inclined to share this show on your stories or with friends or family, please do that too. I do have a book recommendation for you if you want to go deeper into Victoria's story. It's Queen Victoria, 24 Days That Changed Her Life by Lucy Worsley. 
I got a lot of the primary source material from her research, and more generally, she's just a really amazing historian and curator whose work I admire so, so much. If you have any questions or comments for me, I would love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com or follow me, DM me on Instagram, again, at artofhistorypodcast. And I continue to make videos on royal history over on TikTok at Mata of Fact. That's ma- blah, blah, blah. how do I spell my name? That's Mata, M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. Right now, we're on a bit of a Princess Diana and royal fashion kick on TikTok, if that's interesting to you. Until next time, do me a favor and be excellent to each other. Bye, everyone. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.